0: Today we're going to look at four verses. Uh, they're a transition between what we've been looking at over the uh, last six weeks and what we'll be looking at for probably the next six months. So it's a very short section today. It's a transition. So let me tell you where we've been and kind of where we're going. Last week, we looked at this idea. Our takeaway was this idea of creation, rhythm, that God has established a rhythm for everybody to live in, a worship or excuse me, work, rest and relationship. We focused on the rest part, but just to remind you. Work. It's your calling. It's your destiny. Here we call it doing your deal. It's the good works God's created in advance for you to do. It's how you cooperate with what God is doing in the world. He has that sense of purpose for all of us. Relationships. It's not about whether you're single or whether you're married. We're all created for community, and we define that as life-giving relationships. Relationships that are transparent, uh, vulnerable, intentional. uh, People who love you and love God, and you're pursuing those relationships together. We focus mostly on rest. We said rest is the intentional ceasing of productivity. I'm intentionally saying I'm not doing I'm not accomplishing anything uh, during this time. There's a vertical dimension which has to do with reconnecting with the Lord because he's the only one who can truly restore our soul. There's also a horizontal dimension that's very personal and individual. What are the what are the activities or what are the practices that renew and restore me. And I need to figure that out. And so do you. Is it being alone or is it being with other people? Is it reading or is it physical activity? What are the things that nourish me? So that's the horizontal piece. So I'm saying rest. I don't want you to hear me saying I'm just sitting in my chair unless that's what nourishes you. There's a vertical component. Always reconnecting with the Lord, recognizing he's the one that restores my soul. Horizontal component, what are the activities or the practices that renew and nourish me? Then, and this is where it gets tricky, is you actually have to fight for rest. It does not come easy in the society that we live in. Everything is 24-7. And there is, there, no one is going to help you rest. The tape is going to run in your mind. I'm losing ground, I'm getting behind, my kids are being left out. That's the kind of thing that's going to be cycling through your head and you're going to have to make a very intentional choice repeatedly to fight for rest because you were made to rest. And so that's something for you to kind of work through. I don't want to give you any legalisms on that, but I do want to strongly encourage you to work through what does that look like for you individually uh, and for those of you who are... uh, Married, what does it look like in your family to say we have a rhythm of of work, rest, and relationship? Particularly that rest part I think is so hard for us to grab onto. So uh, Luke 6, 12 to 16, where have we been? Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus gives this mission statement. This is why I'm here. Proclaim good news to the poor. Set the captives free. The rest of chapter 4, most of chapter 5, we see examples of Jesus doing that. Not a lot of talking, a whole lot of action. Lots of healings and deliverance, that's Jesus setting people free. Multiple references to Jesus preaching the gospel, that is proclaiming good news to the poor. Second half of uh, chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, we see these three controversy stories. Jesus begins to get sideways with the Pharisees, who are the most influential and the most popular uh, religious group of the day. And so when you think Judaism during Jesus' day, there's multiple streams. Pharisaic Judaism is the dominant one. That's what you see in the Gospels. It's Judaism as understood, practiced, and interpreted by the Pharisees. Jesus is getting sideways with them. One, because he claimed authority to forgive sins. They say, no, that's only for God. Two, He begins to enter into a relationship with tax collectors and sinners. You don't do that. They're unclean. We don't engage with them. And then last week, the straw that broke the camel's back was he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That is, I know how to interpret what it means to to rest. I know how to interpret what God wants us to do with this fourth command, um, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. He's overturning 500 years of rabbinic tradition with that one statement, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and they're done. At that point, they realize, you are not one of us. I think up to that point, they've been suspending judgment. They've been giving him the benefit of the doubt, maybe on some level. At that point, they say, you're out. You're not one of us. Verse 11 says, they're filled with fury, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So they've set themselves up in opposition to Jesus. And then we pick up in uh, verse 12 of chapter 6. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. All night he continued in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve who he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So here's what I think is happening. I think Jesus, coming out of the synagogue, he recognizes they're not happy with me, they're filled with fury. He can see it on their face. He can hear it in their voice. The writings on the wall, we're, we're, they're not going to change their opinions about me. They aren't going to change their expectations and understandings of what it means to people to be the people of God. They're, they're making no accommodations to what God is doing through me. And so I think he goes up on the mountain to ask God what's next. I think he realizes at that point, the old wine skin it's not it doesn't work. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's rigid. There's no play, there's no give, there's no sense of these guys making any alterations to what they understand God to be doing for what he's actually doing in Jesus. So I think at this point, six, chapter 6, verses 11, Jesus is saying, stepping away from the old wineskin, stepping away from the religious leadership of his time, I think he goes up on the mountain to say, what's next? And I think he comes down from the mountain with the new wineskin. I think that's what he gets during that period of that night while he's praying. And the first step in establishing this new wineskin is to say, out of all the guys who are following him, that's disciples, followers, we don't know how many there were, there were at least 70. Uh, Most likely there was a decent bit more than that, particularly this early in his ministry. He calls 12 guys out and he designates them apostles or messengers or sent ones. And their primary responsibility as we read through the rest of the Gospels, as we read through Acts, is to help Jesus spread this new wine, this message proclaiming good news to the poor that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's come to set the captives free. And so he's, uh, that's the first step in this new wine is who's going to help me spread this message. Out of my followers, I'm going to pick these 12 guys. We'll look at them in a minute. What I want you thinking about, when you think about this passage, you may say, not quite certain what this has to do with me. This is what I want to ask you. One, are you at a fork in the road? Is there a decision in front of you that you need to make? If the answer to that is yes, then I hopefully, um, I think there's some stuff here for you. Or are you in a fog? Are you unsure about something in your life and you need insight or you need clarity? You may not say I'm actually making a decision, but things are unclear. Again, I'm in a bit of a fog. Things are unclear for me and I need some Some revelation or I need some insight. If you would answer yes to either of those two questions, then I would I think there's something here for you. If you would say no, then feel free to leave at any point. I'm joking. So process. I think what we see with Jesus is someone asking what's next. We don't know exactly what happened on the mountain. But I'm going to make a couple of educated guesses based on what we read. So Jesus goes up on the mountain. I think he's saying to his father, what's next? And we see he prays all night. Don't be intimidated by that. But there is something there for us. And I think it's the idea of of praying for something from the beginning all the way through to the end. Jesus is trying to figure out what's next. And he stays on the mountain until he gets clarity. He comes back with some action items. And I think again if you would find yourself either in a fog or at a decision point remember this this idea of praying about something from the beginning all the way through to the point of clarity till so you have something that you can act on it may very well be based on your personality the best thing is for you to take a chunk and say I'm going to I'm going to pray all night whatever that looks like I'm I'm not going to get out of this chair until I get some direction and some clarity for, from you on this. And again, I think there, a lot of that's personality. Some of you do better biting off a little chunk every day until you get clarity. But the, the point there to me is Jesus isn't casual. He doesn't just pray about something. God, help me make a good decision about what to do next and then kind of go on his way. He sits there, goes back and forth with God to the point of clarity until he has something that he can hang his hat on and work off of. And my encouragement to you when you find yourself, again, either in a fog or at a decision making point is to take that same posture and say, Prayer is not one of the, one of the ways I'm trying to figure this out. I'm not going to say, God, help me make a good decision and then go about my normal decision making process, whether that's pros and cons or getting advice or throwing a dart at a dartboard. That, that, I'm not saying don't make a decision, I'm saying don't make God just one of the little inputs. Say, rather than that, God, I'm, I need to hear you. And I'm going to pray about this from the beginning all the way to the point of clarity. Yes, I'm going to do these other things. But central, all of those things are wrapped around this idea of I need to hear from you. And that's the second thing is Jesus listened. He came back with the names of 12 guys. I don't think he went up on the mountain saying, God, show me who the 12 guys are. I think he went up on the mountain saying, what's next? And when he came down, I think God had given him enough of a picture of what was going on with the names of these 12 guys that he could move forward. And so there's a listening component there. For many of us, when we think prayer, all we think about is us talking. And I'm just telling God things he already knows anyway, so what's the point? Prayer is absolutely inviting God to get involved, but prayer is an opportunity for God to speak to us. Jesus had a... He he listened. And my encouragement to you, if you're in a fog... Or you had a decision-making point. Cultivate a listening heart. Old Testament, New Testament, a regular, I guess we'll call it criticism, critique from God of his people is you have ears and you're not hearing. You have ears and you're not listening to what I'm saying. If the whole idea of listening to God is foreign to you, if it's difficult for you, if it's not part of your grid, if you would say like with Katie, she has this vision when she's 13 and goes, that doesn't fit And that's off the radar for me. If you would say the idea of hearing God is not necessarily something that you're comfortable with, pray this prayer. God, give me ears to hear you. That's it. God, give me ears to hear you. And if you mean that, you actually want to hear him, then you will. John 10 makes it very plain. Jesus is the shepherd. We're his sheep. We can know his voice. He wants to lead you. We just want to make sure that we're listening. And so my encouragement, again... You're a decision point, fog, commit to praying from the beginning all the way through to the end. That's a heart posture that has nothing to do with the amount of time that you spend praying and everything to do with your commitment to say, God, bring me to a place of clarity. I'm not just praying, uh, saying, God, help me make the best decision. I'm saying, God, what do you have any input here? Anything you want to share with me? I want you to direct my steps and then tag on to that. God, give me ears to hear what you're saying. I want to know. If you've got something to add, I want to know what that is. So help me hear you. Major ways God speaks, he speaks through the word. He speaks directly to your heart. And he speaks through the body. There's some other ways, but those are the main three. Through the word, reading the Bible, directly to your heart. and will also speak to you through other believers. there's two ways I think God will tend to lead. There's two paths, and I think we see one of those with Jesus. One is the path of wisdom, and the other is the path of righteousness. So I'm at a fork in the road, or I'm in the fog, and I'm saying, God, I need some insight, I need some direction. Show me the way forward. One of these two roads, usually it's either going to be this path of wisdom, or it's going to be the path of revelation. I don't want you to see those as competing. They're not. Both of those, wisdom and revelation, have their... um, Origin in God. I don't want you to see one is better than the other. Revelation is not more spiritual than wisdom. Wisdom is not more mature than revelation. It's two different ways that the Lord will lead us. It's two different paths or two different roads uh, that he will walk us down. So wisdom, when you think about the idea of wisdom, biblically, it really has this, the connotation of skill. It's, it's knowledge that's applied. It's knowing how to live well. Uh, It's less about information and content, and it's more about um, practice. So in my mind, if I want to know something, then I go talk to a smart person. If I want advice, I go talk to a wise person. A smart person might know more than me. A wise person knows how to live better than me. And those aren't necessarily the same thing. But you have this, there's this intuitive sense in you that if you want some advice, there are people who you're going to go talk to. And it probably has very little to do with their GPA, where they went to college, or how many books they've read. There's some internal quality in them that, you, that says to you, they can help me with this. They can help me figure out the next step. They understand. There's understanding. There's comprehension. They can help me know how to move forward. That's wisdom. It's, it's holy common sense. And I don't say that in any kind of demeaning way. It's this recognition that God has ordered the world. There's this recognition that there's cause and effect. It's a recognition that, that uh, the past, in a lot of ways, does help us determine present and future. God is a God of order. And holy common sense wisdom says we can know, like we can know how God is going to act based on how we've seen him act in the past. We can apply the truth that we read in the word to our life. It's very applicable. So it's holy common sense. It's how God usually works. Rarely is there new information when it comes to wisdom. Now, revelation is different. Revelation, uh, that connotation is, is uncovering. It's a disclosure of God's will or God's mind about a particular situation. If someone says, I've got a word from God, normally they're talking about revelation. It's new information that's injected into um, a situation. It's probably something that you couldn't have known otherwise. Katie was a great example. That was revelation, that dream. That came out of left field for her. She wasn't moving in that direction at all. And God said, but here's the thing for you. Here's, a, here's the path for your life that was revelation it's often unconventional which for some of you is great and for some of you that makes you nervous what I want you to hear is that God walks down God will lead you down both of those paths and neither one is better than the other but most of us are bent in one of those two directions some of us are more wisdom people and some of us are more revelation people and we can tend to Think or operate that way. What I want you to do is, one, recognize about yourself, which way are you bent? And two, recognize God wants to lead you down both. He's the God of wisdom and he's the God of revelation. And we don't want to pigeonhole him and say, God, this is the only way you can speak to me. This is the only way that you can lead me. If I'm at a fork in the road, if things are foggy for me, I want to be open to wisdom. And I want to be open to revelation. So a couple of things, depending on what kind of person you are. Wisdom people, middle of the bell curve, not because you're average, solid. Decisions that come from wisdom people are always solid. Decisions that come from revelation-oriented people are on the extremes. Their home runs are their strikeouts. Rarely is there anything in between. You go to Africa and you start this great ministry, or you go to Africa and you crash and burn and we got to bring you home in a body bag. It's one of those two things. There's nothing... In between for revelation people. Wisdom people again are much. It's just solid. Steady. Good. Decisions. The ditches. If you're a wisdom person. Wisdom people. This is interesting. Can move ahead without God. Because they, just, they know. There's just kind of this sense. I've already got the map. So I don't necessarily need a guide. He's given me the map. It may be the Bible. But he's given me the map, and so I don't need to necessarily check in with the guide on this particular decision. This is how God works. This is, is, in this situation, this is what you do. And so there can be this sense for wisdom people of either in a perfunctory way, or actually not at all, even checking in with God on many decisions of life. They're on autopilot. Only do what looks good on paper. If that's you, then you're probably a wisdom-oriented person. It doesn't mean that you don't try to figure things out. That That's not it at all. It doesn't mean you don't write anything down on paper. But for wisdom people, if it doesn't look good, they're not going to do it. If it doesn't make sense, that's kind of a that's a wisdom saying. Does that make sense or not? They can see revelation as reckless and irresponsible. You're just bouncing around all over the place. That type of thing. This is a stereotype. In general, the older we get, the more we move towards wisdom. That's what we do. When some of you when Katie was up here talking, depending on your age, you're thinking, "Wow, that was awesome." Or you're thinking, "That was nuts." And for those of you who are parents, you're thinking, "If God tells my 13-year-old daughter to move to Uganda, like we're changing churches, and we're like we're going to do something that we're not doing that." But if you're the 13 year old, you're like, yes, it's revelation. If you're the parent, you're going, you got to go to college. It's that's there's that tension for us. And some of it is generational correctives. If you're a wisdom oriented person, you need to cultivate listening to the Lord. And I would say it's important to do that before you need to hear him. So before you're at a fork in the road, before things are foggy, if you can cultivate what it means to hear the Lord, then you'll be a lot more confident and a lot more comfortable when you actually need to hear something. So if right now, if you would say, I'm not in either of those camps, I'm kind of floating along, everything's pretty good, there's nothing in front of me, then I would say it's a great opportunity for you to begin to cultivate what it means to listen to the Lord. Kind of cultivate that listening heart, asking Him, give me ears to hear you. Because then when you're put in that position... And there is some pressure to make a decision. You'll already be comfortable. And take a risk. Just take a risk. Do something that doesn't look good on paper and see what happens. God, I want you to lead me into something today that makes me at least a bit uncomfortable. I'm going to say yes. You just lead me into something today. And see what happens. Begin to explore that uh, side of your faith. If you're a revelation person, ditch. This may seem counterintuitive. You can become frozen waiting for lightning. So sometimes wisdom people can run ahead of God because they feel like they've already got it run out. Um, Revelation people can lag behind because they're waiting on a dream or a vision or a lightning bolt. And they already have everything they need to make the decision. You've already gotten it. It's clear. You need a job, then put out a resume. That's, That's just wisdom. You don't need to ask God if you should do that. If you want to get married, then ask a girl on a date. You don't need an angel to show up and tell you that. Wisdom says she's probably not going to agree to marry you until she's gone out with you once. (laughs) So those are the that's sometimes revelation. People can get locked up because they're waiting for something that's not going to come. He's already it's already clear. And so move ahead. Assume every thought is a directive from God. Very easy for revelation-oriented people to take their desires and project them onto God. And then basically God says whatever they want him to say. Very tricky uh, for that. And they can also see wisdom. They can tend to demean wisdom. There's no faith involved in that. There's no risk. There's no trust. If you're a revelation-oriented person, you you need to read the Bible is the first thing you need to do cause the holy spirit will never lead you to do something that's counter to what he's already revealed in scripture. This the bible is a great they're great it's great guardrails for you. If you're a revelation oriented person, it will keep you on the road. And so will the body. Don't make decisions, I would encourage you, don't make decisions in isolation. It is hard if you're a revelation oriented person to slow down enough to bring other people into the process, but do that. It will keep you from a massive amount of heartache. What God is saying to you most of the time will resonate with people who love you. Not all the time. There are times where you're going to have to go solo, but often the things that he's stirring in your heart will resonate in the hearts of those who love you as well. So you can obviously see there can be tension between these two folks, particularly if they have the same last name. And so some of you (laughs) are looking at this and you see the ditches that your spouse falls into you of course don't fall into the ditches on your side but you can absolutely see the flaws for them and if that's where if you're married to someone who leans the other way i want you to recognize neither one is better than the other god works through wisdom and he works through revelation and the the thing is how do we pull those things together how do we take the best of each of those things? What does it look like if I'm a revelation-oriented person to lean towards wisdom? Because there are times where that's the way God wants to lead me. If I'm a wisdom-oriented person, what does it look like for me to lean towards revelation? Because there are times that that's how God wants to lead me. And within our household, within your, some of you, it's, with, it's your boss. It's you and your boss. Y'all, don't, y'all are different. Maybe with your parents. In those primary relationships, how do we hold both of those things Together, let me tell you two quick stories from our uh, experience as a church that maybe will help um, illustrate this. When we first started, we had a, a we had thirty adults and we had seventeen children. So that was the reality for us. We had seventeen children. I was the the staff was just me, and I wasn't going to take care of seventeen children. So it became, and nobody wanted me to. Nobody was begging me to do that. So what became a parent was we needed somebody. We needed a children's pastor. That became apparent. We did some research. And one of the things that guys who plant churches will tell you is a pastor tends to draw people 10 years on either side of their age. It's not a rule, but in general, that's kind of a guide. So when we Stonebridge really started moving, I was 32 years old, so 22 to 42. Just looking at that demographic, there's going to be people who have children in that demographic. We already had 17 We only had 30 adults. We're going to have more to come. We need somebody who can pastor children. And so I worked next door to Penny Harrison. We were both at Riverstone at the time. And I sent her an email and said, tell me if I'm going to hire somebody, what am I looking for in a children's pastor? All of this, God's leading me through wisdom. It makes sense. We we have children currently. We're going to have more. We need someone to pastor them. Penny's awesome so she can tell me what to look for because I don't even know what to look for in a children's pastor. And she sent me an email back and said, come talk to me. So I went and I sat down and I talked to her and I took this whole page of notes. I still have it. All these things. She said, you need to look for this. 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 And at the end, I was about to get up. She started crying and said, I'm the girl. And wisdom says, when somebody volunteers to be your children's pastor, (laughs) you say yes. Especially if they 're the best, and she is she 's the best best one i 've ever seen. That was the decision where we were led through the path of wisdom. Now, if you talk to Penny, her experience is completely different of that there was no there was no, there was no common sense, no holy common sense in the route that she took to get here. But from my perspective, it was very, very plain again, just kind of this holy common sense that led us to her. We also needed to find a place. To meet. We needed a location. Uh, Riverstone was meeting out here on the South Loop. Some of you were part of the church when we did that. Was moving to West Cobb, a corner of Barrett Parkway and Stiles Barrow Road, across from Mount Perrin Christian School. And there was thought in the leadership. Stonebridge, we didn't have a name at that point, this church needs to either be in Smyrna or in Dallas. One of those two places. And there was wisdom there. Far enough away that we're not going to be fishing out of the same swimming pool. Near enough that we can still be in relationship Done some research, those areas demographically looked good for a new church. They were not overchurched at that point. Dem- also some church planting research about how near you needed to be to kind of the mothership. All of those things pointed to Smyrna or to Dallas. Didn't necessarily sit great with me, but that, that was the prevailing wisdom. One Sunday, there were a couple of missionaries. We had ministry time after our services at Riverstone, just like we do here. And there were some folks who were missionaries from Thailand who were just on the ministry team. They were just there, and they knew one of the pastors. And so we asked them to be up there to pray for people. And I went forward to them and said, my name is David. I'm planting a church. I'd love for you guys to pray with me or pray for me. And they prayed, and the lady, I can't remember her name, said, I feel like the Lord wants you to plant a church in the dirt that you grew up in, which is here. This is where I grew up. I knew immediately we needed to be in Marietta. And I told the leadership, and they were like, absolutely, revelation trumps wisdom. Every time, if you feel like you've heard from the Lord, and that seemed very clear, this person who doesn't know me from anybody had no idea the decisions we were trying to make, saying something like that. And then our Stonebridge's leadership team, we prayed and pretty quickly felt like the Lord was saying the heart of Marietta. That's where we needed to focus. And that's why we're here it's, it's revelation. There's no common sense to any of the stuff that we're doing here. You don't move into a building that has terrible plumbing, no parking, you can't control the temperature, the kids are up the street, you've got the corner of death people have to come around <laughs> just to get in the building. You don't do that. There's no common sense to any of that. I was talking to a guy, he's, he started a church. They're about three years old. And he told me the other day, they're about to put a contract on 18,000 square feet. And he told me what they're paying. And it's significantly less than what we're paying for 10. I'm like, shoot me in the head. This, none of this makes any sense. We have three services just to accommodate 400 people. None of, it, none of that is wise. But all of it is based on Revelation. And that's why we're here. And that's why we're willing to work with and force you to work with the inconveniences of being a storefront church on the square. Because as sure as I know my name, and as sure as our leadership team knew each one of their names, they knew. God said, plant a church in the place where you're from and go for the heart of Marietta. And so that's where that decision comes from. And neither wisdom nor revelation is, is better. God led us in one case, in one hand, down the path of wisdom. He led us in another case, down the path revelation, I would never, ever advise you to leave wisdom unless you have revelation. And when revelation comes, if it comes, I would say it always trumps wisdom. But you don't let go of wisdom unless there's revelation in the mix. Last thing, and we're going to close. Looking at these 12 guys, we're not going to spend any time uh, looking at them individually. You can read one. Go back, please, Alex. You can get that book. Thirteen Apostles, Ellsworth Callis. he's a great guy. He says 13 because he talks about Matthias who replaced Judas in Acts. If you want some individual portraits, that's them. It's not an academic book at all. It's very kind of inspirational. He's a great um, communicator, and so you, that would encourage you. I don't know if you can actually find the book, but you can download it uh, for your Kindle for sure. Alex, if you'll show the next one. These are the lists down the left... Um, Those are Luke's names for the 12 disciples, and what you see in parentheses is what they're called uh, in the other books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts each have a list of the 12 disciples. This is them. Sometimes uh, you see different names. This is the way they're connected together. On the right, those are the major places where you'll see them. That's not it for Peter. There's plenty more for him, but the rest of those guys, that's a pretty comprehensive list of where you'll see their activity in the Gospels, which is not much. And so, again, we're not going to spend any time trying to look at them individually. Um, What I would say is, are there things that we see in common that speak to us as people who are following Jesus? And my hope for all of us is that we would say at some point we want to be sent by him. We want to do that. We want to be ones who are sent as well. We want to live our lives as missionaries Two, one of the first things you may notice is they're all Jewish men. Um, that doesn't connect to us. That doesn't apply to us anymore. That was a functional decision. These guys were messengers. They started in Jerusalem. Then they go to Judea. A Jewish audience would not hear a Gentile, and a Jewish audience would not hear a woman, even if she was a Jew. Women weren't even allowed to testify in court. So if the point, if, the, if these guys' primary function is to spread a message, then you start with messengers who people are going to hear. I say credible, and I mean in the eyes of the audience, not in the eyes of Jesus. And you'll see very quickly in Acts, about halfway through, both women and Gentiles are included in this idea of being messengers. So the fact that they're all Jews doesn't, that's not applicable for us. The fact that they're all men is not. You may look at that and say, that is a group of unlikely people, absolutely, if you were going to create a new wineskin for a religious movement, these are not necessarily the 12 guys that you would choose. We see the call story, the way Jesus called them for seven of them. None of those guys that we know were in the... He didn't call anybody out of a synagogue. He didn't call anybody out of a seminary. He didn't look at anybody's credentials. They don't seem to have any pedigree that would lean towards saying, oh yeah, this, this is, these are the perfect guys to pick to start a new religious movement. It would be like if I said, I want to enter a World Cup soccer team. And I went to... Don't laugh. (laughs) Come on. I was most improved in the 10th grade. (laughs) So, if I said, as a coach... I wanted to create this World Cup soccer team. And you said, well, where are you going to go and get the guys? And I said, I'm going to go to spring training. And you said, they they play baseball there. Oh, it'll be fine. That's what he did. He picked baseball players to play soccer. He picked guys without any religious background or pedigree, even knowledge in some ways. And said, these are the ones I'm going to start with. If you go through this list, they're all over the place. Nathaniel is probably older than Jesus. John is probably a teenager when he's called. Matthew is a tax collector. He's working for the Roman government. Simon is a zealot who literally would want to kill Matthew because he was such a nationalist. He hated anybody who would work with Rome. You've got fishermen. Some of these guys will not even know anything. It's not who you pick. But it's who Jesus chose. Why? Those things are different. What's the same other than they were Jewish men? They were all hungry. There was a desire in each of them that said, I'm going to follow that guy. Even in Judas Iscariot, there was a desire in him that said, I'm going to follow that guy. And if I've got to leave something behind, then I'll leave it behind because he's worth it. Second Chronicles sixteen nine says, The eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth, looking to support those, looking to strongly support those whose heart is fully his. That's these guys. Jesus had their heart. They didn't fully understand what they were saying yes to, but He had their heart, and so He was able to send them back out. And my encouragement to you this morning: I'm asking, does He have yours? We live. We said before, we live. We are the thorny soil. That is Cobb County. The kingdom of God can absolutely take root in our hearts, but there are so many other things that compete with the kingdom for our time and our attention and our allegiance. They choke out what God. Those things that are good often choke out what God wants to do in us. And what he wants to say is, do I have all of your heart? Will you pull out anything that I determine is a weed, even if you like it? Even if it's good, will you pull it out if I say it's a weed? These guys were absolutely. What gets in the way? My job gets in the way? Done. My family gets in the way? Done. What else? My old friends get... Whatever. There's this desire in them that said you're worth it. You're worth whatever leaving behind whatever i've got to the primary is i want to be with you the secondary is anything that holds me back i'm going to get rid of and so my question to you this morning as we close does he have your whole heart jeremiah 29 you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart there's this thing in god that says where's your desire what's what's the hunger level for you during Lent, we're halfway through. One of the things that we're praying is that God would stir a deeper hunger in us for Him. That's this we want to say. Yes, if you're going to look throughout all of the earth, and if you say you're going to support anyone whose heart is fully yours, then when your eyes get on me, I want I want you to say that's that's my guy. My, his heart is fully mine. That's my girl. Her heart is fully mine. If his heart, if your heart's not fully his, it doesn't mean that you're. You don't love God. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean that God's disappointed in you at all. But it means you can't, he can't send you. He can't fully and strongly support you because he doesn't have all of you. Some of your weight is on something else. And so he will wait until his, your heart is fully his. Let's pray. God, we're going to walk through a couple of things. Just track with me on this. Never have done this, and I'm thankful that i'm but I'm going to do this now. if you're sitting next to your spouse, I want you just to grab their hand. No rubbing and no interlocking fingers. Just grab their hand <laughs> if you're single I don't want you to feel left out at all I'm thinking here as we're talking about fog and decision points there's one there's one answer per family, and so if you're single, obviously that answer is individual to you, if you're married, then that's a y'all answer. And so I want you thinking about this together. And so holding hands is just a symbol of the fact that you're saying "There's, we're, we're one. We're doing this together. So first question, is your heart fully his? Don't answer out of guilt. It's your gut. If the answer is no, listen, God, I pray for any of us where weeds have grown up in our own hearts. If your eyes are ranging to and fro throughout Cobb County, when you get to us, you love us, you like us, you delight in us. But you would say there's weeds in your heart. Would you highlight what those are? Whatever came to your mind, I just want you to confess that to the Lord. God, I recognize that you said, this is a weed. And you may say, and I disagree. You've got to give me grace to know what it means to pull that thing out. My ultimate desire, if you, this is you, you can pray it. My ultimate desire is for my heart to be fully yours. I want you to strongly support me. I want to say, I'm seeking you with all of my heart. So anything that would hinder that, I want to leave that behind. Second thing, are you at a decision point? Is there fog in your life? You're not seeing clearly. In your heart, God, I commit to praying praying all the way through, from the beginning of this thing to the point of clarity. You're not one input among many. You're primary. And so I'm asking you to direct this process for me. I confess that I'm bent towards either wisdom or revelation. And I want to be open to however you want to lead me, whether that's down the path of wisdom or down the path of revelation. Give me ears to hear what you're saying to me. God, my prayer for every man and woman in this room, single, married, divorced, widowed, children at home, no children, employed, unemployed, under pressure, loving life, wherever we would find ourselves, men, women, wherever we find ourselves this morning. God, my prayer, first, is that we would be people whose hearts are fully yours. And second, That we would be people who are led by your spirit in all decisions in our life. Over these next three minutes, would you speak to those at decision points? These next three minutes, would you bring clarity to those who are in the fog? To show them the next step. And give us hearts that have already said yes to whatever it is you're going to ask of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. We have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. But it, I would say particularly, if you're at a decision point or if there's fog, I want you to come forward. And if you're, if you're married and your spouse is here, I want you to bring them with you. Because um, we want to pray for y'all as one that the Lord would bring some direction. So you guys can stand and Bo will dismiss us uh, after this song.